We are grateful today. Uh, last Monday, um, April 1st, uh, Ryan Witherall completed four years of serving as our worship coordinator. He started in uh, April of 2015, and we are grateful for his ministry in our congregation. Uh, he will be gone for the next few weeks. Wednesday, Lord willing, uh, the Witherells are going to be welcoming baby number two. So he's going to take a few weeks off to help uh, care for his family in particular in that way. We will miss him from his leadership up front, but it's worth it to have another Witherell baby in the church. So uh, we are grateful to God, Ryan, for the service that you uh, render when you lead us in worship. Well, I have something I want to show you. Um, This is uh, something that my wife gave me for Christmas this year. Um... Most people can't remember their Christmas presents by January 15th, but I remember this. It is a Tracer 360 visibility vest. So um, you wear it like a backpack. This part goes in your bag and you clip. I'm not going to put it on. Some of you are wanting me to. I'm not. And, um, uh, and, 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 and you light the button, and it's not very bright in here. Well, kind of. It's kind of obnoxious. But um, I wear this in the morning when I go out and walk, uh, and um, you should see it when it's dark outside, how bright it is. In fact, if you are running or walking with this, don't look down because you'll have a seizure. So um, it's just very good. Uh, She brought this for me so that I could be seen by passing cars. Um, It pairs really well with a sweatshirt that she bought me a couple of years ago, also for walking in the morning. Now I put these on and I look like a nuclear power plant in full meltdown. It is amazing. Either it keeps me safe or it keeps me as a really good target. One or the other, I'm not sure which it is. Now, why did my wife buy me these things for uh, holidays? She did it to keep me safe. She wants me to be safe because... Now, now, guess what I'm getting next year for Christmas? <laughs> uh, she did it to keep me safe because she loves me. Because she loves me, she wants me to be safe. If you love someone, you're concerned about their safety. Uh, last uh, week on Saturday morning, a number of ushers and then a number of our Sunday school teachers, nursery workers, Awana leaders, they met in the fellowship hall. We had a training session together devoted to safety in the building, to keeping the building and keeping, more importantly, the people in the building safe. We ended the morning with a fire drill. Um, we might have one of those some Sunday morning in the next couple months. Not, not today. We'll give you plenty of warning about it. But uh, we may have one. And the reason that we met last week is because if you love someone, you will work to keep them safe. Well, that was the Apostle John's chief concern when he wrote the little letter that we call Second John. Uh, that's the book that I want to direct your attention to this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to Second John. And we're going to talk about being safe this morning. Um, you can find Second John. It's, the easiest way to find Second John is to find the book of Revelation, which is right at the end, and then just turn a couple of pages to the left. Because Second John is a tiny little book in the New Testament. It probably doesn't take up more than one page in your Bible. We've been walking through the letters that John wrote. Uh, we spent several months in First John, and then we're going to spend a month or so in Second and Third John. And today we're going to look at the second half of this book, which is a warning passage. John wants to warn the, past, the church about false teachers. 
This is not the only place, of course, that the Bible talks about false teachers. Ed read a passage from 1 Timothy 4 where that was the emphasis. And then there are major sections in Galatians and 2 Peter and Jude and the book of Philippians, all devoted to the danger of false teaching. From the beginning, the apostles were concerned about false teachers, and they charged in particular elders and pastors, but then also the whole congregation with watching over the church, watching out for false teaching. One of your responsibilities as a member of our congregation is to help protect the church, to help guard the church against false teaching. Today from 2 John, I want you to see three things. I want to show you three things. First, we're going to talk about who false teachers are. Then we're going to talk about what false teachers say. And third, we're going to see how John wants us to respond to false teachers. So who they are, what they say, and how to respond. Let's read 2 John before we begin. Uh, We're going to look more detailed at the second half, but it's short enough we'll read the whole thing. All right, so let's start 2 John verse 1. John writes this, the elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth. And not only, not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God, the father and from Jesus Christ, the father's son, it will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister who is chosen by God send their greetings. So false teachers, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to start by thinking about who they are. How does John describe them? And he does it very simply with two titles in verse 7. He's quite blunt. He calls them deceivers and antichrists. Deceivers and antichrists. Now, before we unpack that a little bit more, we have to go back to verse 7. And I wonder if you noticed how verse 7 begins. It begins with this phrase, I say this because many deceivers... Uh, your translation might say for, or if you have an old enough, an older NIV, it doesn't say anything. It just talks about the deceivers uh, immediately. There's an important link in this text, though. John says in verse 7, I am writing what I'm writing to you. I'm saying what I just said to you in the first six verses because of the false teachers. Remember, John has been commending them 
for their faithfulness to the truth. The members of the church that he recently met have been walking in the truth and he just fills them with joy. He commends them for it. And he says to them, the truth that you believe has produced love. In fact, that's what the truth does, how the truth manifests itself. When the truth about Jesus is believed, when it is studied, when it is held up, appreciated, celebrated in all its fullness, the truth about Jesus always produces love. That's what it does. Uh, and, and, and in Second John, there's this beautiful combination in this book of a church that is faithful to the truth and growing in love. The truth and love together. Remember what Danny Aiken said, the balance of Second John. This book is about a commitment to the truth that knows no compromises and a love for one another that knows no boundaries. Truth and love, they, they go together. And to safeguard that truth-filled, love-filled community, John warns them about false teachers. Because you're a congregation that knows the truth and loves the truth and loves one another because of the truth, I want to warn you about false teachers, he says. He focuses on the truth because the way to destroy love in a church is to woo it away from the truth. It's interesting. I'm not sure that's the way we often think about love. Uh, the way to destroy love in a church is to destroy the truth in the church. We, we tend to think that truly loving communities are flexible with the truth. That's not the way John is arguing, though, here. John MacArthur, the preacher, said that hard truth makes soft hearts. Hard truth makes soft hearts. And, and I suppose the opposite is true, too. Soft truth makes hard hearts. If you want to destroy the loving atmosphere in a congregation, the love that the brothers and sisters have for one another, then destroy, then shake their confidence in the truth. So to help us with that, John warns us about deceivers. He says these deceivers have gone out into the world. That's a strange phrase. Where did they come from? If they've gone out into the world, where were they at the beginning? That they went out. John, I think it's suggesting that these false teachers are shadows of the apostles themselves. So the Lord Jesus sent out his disciples. They went out into the world. And after they went out into the world, these false teachers, they too went out into the world. They're, they're anti-apostles. They're anti-missionaries. They're preachers of an anti-gospel. They're anti-Christs. He uses that phrase to describe them. Now, you may remember that when we went through 1 John, we talked about the title Antichrist. John is the only writer in the New Testament to use that word, but there are other references to him in the Bible. The Antichrist is this uh, pivotal character at the end of the age. Turn back with me just a page or two to 1 John 2, if you wouldn't mind. Let's look at 1 John 2.18. This is the first place he uses this phrase, Antichrist. 1 John 2.18, John wrote... Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist, the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Antichrist, there is one coming who will oppose Christ and his people. He is coming, but for now, there's many little Antichrists. Remember, uh, the Apostle Paul called him the man of lawlessness. I wrote down the verses in 2 Thessalonians 2 on your note sheet. Look what he says. 
Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. These are details about the end of the age that is coming. He's the Antichrist, but for now... There are those who are false teachers who have started his work in opposing Jesus by preaching a message that is different than the apostles preached about the Lord Jesus. These false teachers, they deceive the church. They oppose Christ. They do both. What I'm not sure about when I read this text in 2 John is I'm not sure if these are... Uh, these false teachers are intentionally lying or if they themselves are deceived. So they're deceivers. Are they deceived themselves or are they charlatans? Probably a little bit of both. But I wonder if it's possible that these, these teachers are doing what they think is right. They're, they're, they're teaching the truth, but, but it's not the truth that they're teaching. In August of 2013, there was a a public zoo in one of the provinces of China that had to close. And the reason that the zoo had to close is because the visitors to the zoo figured out that the animal in the lion cage was actually a dog and not a lion. (laughs) Now, in the zoo's defense, it was a Tibetan mastiff. If you've ever seen a picture of a Tibetan mastiff, they're huge. But her mother was there with her child, and the mother looked at the, uh, at the uh, lion in the cage and was talking to the lion when all of a sudden the lion barked <laughs> at her. So the jig was up. So they went around the zoo, and they looked further. They found a white fox in the leopard's cage. They found a dog in the wolf exhibit and two giant sea cucumbers in the snake house. Uh, the zoo, this is their response, the official spokesman from the zoo said, we're doing our best in tough economic times. <laughs> we're just doing our best, right? I don't know if these false teachers are deceptive on purpose or not. I don't know. Maybe they thought they were helping people, but sincerity is not the test of truth. And so there's this call for vigilance, these false teachers. They're there. We're going to come to this later in more detail, but verse 8 tells us what to do with them. Watch out for them. Watch out. Expect them. Be prepared for them to come. Listen. uh, Listen to this warning. Heed it. Not everyone who claims to be a preacher of the gospel actually is. Not every book sold by a Christian bookstore is worth reading. Not every preacher you see on television, in fact, most of them, are not telling the truth. Be careful. Look. Watch out for them. Sometimes we Christians, we can be incredibly naive. Um, I think in part, it stems from our emphasis on grace. We're welcoming people. We're generally open to people. We're glad to see them this morning as I have been watching around as people were coming in. We had visitors come in the church and, and there were several people, you, you uh, members of our church who welcomed them and greeted them and tried to make them feel glad to be here. That's, that's great. But in your welcome, your openness, be careful, realize there are false teachers in the world. That openness creates a danger. It allows deception to flourish. We need warnings like this. 
Now that leads me secondly here. That's who the false teachers are. They're deceivers. They're antichrist. Secondly, what do false teachers say? What do they say? This is John's particular focus. We're going to look at John's particular focus. There are other ways to go wrong. There are other ways to be a false teacher. But here's what John is particularly concerned about. And we've seen something like this before in his letter. Verse 7, I say this because many deceivers, here they, here's what they're saying, who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Uh, they're denying that... Jesus is God the Son who took to himself a human nature and became a true and genuine human being. That's what they're denying. So our doctrinal statement describes this truth this way. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's one and only eternal Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He is fully God and fully human. They're denying the incarnation is what these teachers are are doing. Uh, John uses an unusual word here. It's actually not an unusual word, it's an unusual tense. He says, I say this, verse 7, because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, or it's a present tense verb, comes. They do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ comes in the flesh. As if it's happening right now, right as I'm speaking, he comes. Now that's different than how he put it back in 1 John. Can we flip back there again? Look at 1 John 4, 2. I want you to notice the difference uh, here in the text, how he writes. Verse 2 of chapter 4 of 1 John says, This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So in verse 2 it says, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And then in verse 7 it says, Jesus Christ comes in the flesh. Well, why the difference? Well, I think in 1 John 4, John is referring here to the incarnation. He's talking about that moment in Nazareth when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and the eternal Son of God took to himself a human nature. It happened. He, he became... Uh, the, 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 God the Son became the incarnate Son of God in that moment. But in verse 7 of Second John, his emphasis is on his ongoing existence as the God-man. He is now, even now, the God-man. He is now truly human and truly God at the same time. He will exist forever into eternity as the God-man. These two natures, holy and truly, united together in one person, and they will not ever be divided. He is still today the God-man. He became human. He is human. He'll be human forever. And actually, because he was the sinless human, the sinless son of God. That's God made us to be sinless, but Jesus was the only one. He's the humanist, humaniest human who has ever existed. He's the best human that has ever lived. And, and according to God's own plan, this God-man is going to return to earth. Where do humans live? L- humans live on earth forever. He, right now he's at his father's right hand. He's going to return to earth someday and forever be with us on a new earth that's created just for that perfect purpose as the perfect place who all who believe to dwell with the God-man. You know what's interesting? First Thessalonians 1, how it describes Christians. First Thessalonians 1 describes Christians as those who have turned to God to wait for his son Jesus to return to earth. We're still waiting. This is not all there is. 
were waiting for the God-man to return and be on earth. In his uh, fine little book about marriage, Ray Ortland said that in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, God made the earth and it was the perfect home for the first man and the first woman to live together. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, God's going to make a new heavens and a new earth and it will be the perfect dwelling place for his son, the God-man, and his bride, the church. John's writing about this sort of unfading glory. He is in flesh, the Lord Jesus, now and forevermore. That's the sort of truth that these false teachers are denying. And, and verse, verse 9 tells us what they have done. It says they have run ahead. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. We'll talk about that in a minute. That phrase, run ahead, I think it's a reference to these false teachers who are claiming to be more advanced. They're more progressive. We understand the truth more. We're further down the road than the rest of you. We're ahead of all of you. I wonder if John had this in mind when he wrote back in verse 5 of Second John. He says, I'm not writing you a new command. Those who teach the teachings of Christ... We don't have new commands. Uh, we, we teach things that we have had from the beginning. It's those who are running ahead. They have all of the new stuff. We have the old stuff. They've got the new stuff. They are the ones who have reached this new plane of existence, and they've gotten so far ahead, they're now on a different team. Actually, this reminds me of a, a book I read a number of years ago by Warren Wiersbe. It's called, a little book called On Being a Servant of God. And he had a little essay in there where he gives advice to young leaders, young leaders in the church. He has four points. Number one, never take down a fence until you know why it was put up. Number two, don't complain about the bottom rungs of the ladder. They helped to get you higher. Number three, if you want to enjoy the rainbow, be prepared to endure the storm. And number four, if you get too far ahead of the army, your soldiers may mistake you for the enemy. The problem is that John is writing about teachers who have gotten so far ahead that they have become the enemy. Now, I wonder if we were reading this, if you saw another reminder about the exclusivity of the message that we preach. Uh, we've been talking about this in First and Second and Third John. It's the emphasis, of course, that the Lord Jesus began in John fourteen six when He said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me." We believe in an exclusive message, and John is emphasizing that here. He does it by pairing again the Father and the Son. Verse nine: Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. You don't have God if you don't have the Christ who is the God-man. Conversely, the good news is, whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If you have Christ, you have the Father. If you don't have Christ, if you don't have the Son, if you don't say what the apostles said about the Son, you don't have the Father. All the way through the New Testament, there's this troubling insistence, life is found only in Jesus. Only through a connection to him. And if you deny him by denying who he is, you do not know the Father and you do not have life. There's no exceptions. 
There's no allowances. There's no workarounds. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the Father. Now, this, of course, helps us answer a question that comes up periodically. It happens. Sometimes people will ask the question, is Allah the God named by Muslims, is he the same God as the Father of Jesus? Do Christians and Muslims worship the same God with the exception that we also worship his son? And the answer to that question is no. Muslims are insistent Allah has no son. And if you do not have the son, you do not have the father. John Dixon is a Christian author and speaker. He was in Great Britain. I think he's British. He told a story, which is convenient if you're British to be in Britain, but um, he wrote a book called If I Were God, I'd End All Pain. He wrote this book, and he told the story about going to a university campus. He was at a college campus, and he was doing a presentation, and his presentation was called The Wounds of God. I think it was based on Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. So he's doing this presentation about the wounds of God. And when he was done, he asked if he had any questions. There's a man in his 30s, a Muslim leader at the university. And this man stood up and he told the audience, he said, it's preposterous to believe that the creator of the universe would be subjected to the forces of his own creation. He's the creator. His creation can't act upon him. So it's preposterous to think that he would eat or that he would sleep or that he would go to the bathroom or that he would die on a cross. It's preposterous to think that God would do that. They argued about this for about 10 minutes. It was a relatively cordial discussion. Um, but this man just, it's impossible to think that God would have wounds Allah is the creator of causes. He is not caused upon. He is not acted upon by a lesser entity. It's blasphemy to say that that would happen. And Dixon wrote this about their exchange a little bit later. He said, I had no knockdown argument, no witty comeback. The debate was probably too amicable for either approach anyway. In the end, I simply thanked him for demonstrating for the audience the radical contrast between the Islamic conception of God and that prescribed in the Bible. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds as precious. God has wounds. The God-man. It's only by the wounds of the God-man that we are saved, that we're rescued from our sin, from the wrath of God that our sin merits through Jesus' death for us on the cross. He, of course, paid the penalty that we owed. He died the death that we deserved. And the only way to have life, the only way to know the Father, is by turning and trusting in the Son. Everyone who does not believe that will be justly and rightly condemned. That's a very exclusive claim. Now how is it that we can claim to be loving people and believe such a narrow message? How is that possible? How does this narrow message not make us hateful and not make us intolerant? Some people believe it does. Having a narrow message like that makes you intolerant and, and hateful. On his deathbed, one of the relatives of Mohandas Gandhi asked him, he said, you've been looking for God all of your life. Have you found him? And Gandhi said, I'm still looking. Michael Green is a, a theologian. He said, the humility and the earnestness, the sheer goodness of a great teacher like Gandhi shines through in a remark like that. But it stands, he says, in the most stark contrast with Jesus' claim, no one knows the Father except through the Son. 
Now, the truth that keeps us from being intolerant and hateful people is that though the door to heaven is very narrow, the door to heaven is very narrow, the welcome mat is as wide as the whole world. Anyone can come. Anyone can come. The door is very narrow, but the welcome mat is as wide as the whole world. Because Jesus' death is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. He is a Savior who is able to save the entire world. Anyone, absolutely anyone who turns to him will find life in his name. The invitation is not narrowed down to people of a certain race or age or nationality or socioeconomic status or educational level. It's open for absolutely anyone, you included. Have you been following the details of the college admissions scandal? I haven't been following it uh, very well. It makes those of us who are not rich feel very self-righteous. So I know the basic story. You know, several parents have been arrested for paying thousands of dollars. I think somebody, uh, in one case, over a million dollars to get their children admitted to elite schools. Um, I've I've heard several times about the true victims of this crime. The true victims of this crime are the students who were next in line to be admitted, but they got bumped from their admission to the school because of the bribes. Deserving students who were turned down to these schools because there wasn't room, and, and they got bumped because of these charlatans who bribed their way into the school. But you know, with the good news about Jesus, none of us are deserving No one can pay their way in and there's nobody who's deserving that you're going to knock out of the way. We're all sinners. No one deserves forgiveness, but the welcome mat is there for all. And and we believe the welcome mat is wide and broad and open for all. In fact, we believe it so much that we give a lot of money to ensuring that all kinds of people can hear this message. We want college athletes at Millersville University and other students at Millersville University to hear it and believe it, so we give a lot of money to to enable that to happen. We think that prisoners in the Chester County Jail should hear and believe this message. We want Indian and Chinese graduate students who are studying in Boston to hear and believe this message. We want victims of sex trafficking and broken families in Latin America to hear it. We want atheists and agnostics on both sides of France to hear and believe this message. We want people who live in Papua New Guinea who don't have the Bible in their own language to hear and believe this message. So we send our people and we send our money so that they can hear this message because the door is very narrow, but the welcome mat is very wide. The false teachers, they have no good news because they have no Savior Jesus. They're denying the Son. Now, finally, we have to talk about our response. How do we respond to them? How do we respond to them? There's two commands in the passage that tell us what to do, and both commands have given us trouble at certain times. Not the commands themselves, but applying them and working them out. Verse 8 has one command, watch out. And verse 10 has another command, set of commands, they, they go together. Do not take them into your home. Do not welcome them. So those are the commands. Watch out for them. Do not take them into your home. Do not welcome them. Now here's the trouble that these verses, these commands have caused us. The reason, verse 8, we're supposed to watch out for them, it says, watch out so that you do not lose what you or what we, we're not sure, 
have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Now, what are they going to lose? What? So watch out. The implication is if you believe what these false teachers are teaching, you're going to lose. What are they going to lose? Are they going to lose their salvation? That's how some people interpret this passage. You're going to lose your salvation. John Stott says that our salvation is not something that we worked for. It's a gift, so it can't be that. Actually, there, there are good and, and well-meaning people who believe that it's possible for you to lose your salvation, and they, they, they point to this verse. Actually, there's not enough here to have a... There's not enough in verse 8 to make a full-throated defense of whether or not you can lose or can't lose your salvation. So most of the time what, hap- what people do is they have convictions that they get from other parts of the Bible, and they bring them to this passage, and they explain it with their convictions uh, uh, from other parts of the Bible, like I'm going to do right now. I think what he's talking about here is he's making reference to, to what he has already told us in 1 John 2.19. He's already told us this in 1 John 2.19 about false teachers. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So the fact that they are following, that there are people who are following the false teachers is a revelation that they were never really part of us in the first place. They didn't lose it because they never really had it in the first place. So watch out for these false teachers. Now, this should help us think about the purposes of warning passages in the New Testament and why they're here. We believe that God keeps his people. God keeps his people. Vody Bauckham says, sometimes tells people, if you could lose your salvation, if it was possible for you to mess up your life so badly that you would lose your salvation, you would. If you could, you would. He says that. But God keeps us. It's like a toddler walking across the street with his dad. Take my hand, we're going to cross the street. Both are holding on. Whose hand is more important in that moment? Whose grip? really matters at that moment. It's the father's grip, isn't it? He's got the death grip, the jujitsu death grip on his child as they're walking across the street. I once had a hold of one of my child's hands so tightly that when this child, this person will remain nameless, um, was trying to get away, pulled so hard, the elbow popped out a joint. I felt it in my hand as I was holding it. Don't look at me like that. It's a real thing, okay? It's uh, nursemaid's elbow. Heard it pop out, and it remained out until we went to the doctor's office, and he twisted a little bit and popped it right back in. I, it sounds terrible. It wasn't that bad. Um, and it was 10 years ago, so that makes it feel a little bit better. So uh, that happened. God keeps us. He keeps us. One of the ways that God keeps us is by warning us with passages like this in First John and Second John. So the warning is for. It's one of the means that God uses to keep us. Now, do you notice that what the difference between what the false teachers bring and what John brings? The false teachers, they're, they're bringing a message that will cause you to lose. And John comes, when John comes, he brings a message, verse 12, that's going to make your joy complete. Huh. Full joy. Full joy. This complete message of joy celebrating the Lord Jesus and who he is. 
That's the trouble in verse 8. Now the trouble in verse 10, the trouble that we have sometimes with verse 10 is that verse 10 is not a warrant for us to be rude or to be angry or to be hostile to false teachers. All right. Remember the context, okay, of the first century. When John was writing this, Christians were traveling and traveling Christian teachers needed a place to stay. And the apostles commended to them the, the virtue of hospitality. There were no hotels like we have today. There were places where you could rent rooms, but most of them were brothels. So, so for the sake of Christian love, followers of Jesus welcomed one another into their homes. But John says, don't welcome them into your homes as if they're fellow brothers or sisters in Christ because they're not. Don't greet them. In other words, don't encourage them. Don't support them. Don't contribute to their work. Don't participate in their work. Don't welcome them as brothers and sisters. He is not saying, though, uh, to stone them or to hurt them, or to shame them, or to beat them up. Sometimes people use this verse to say that they never let a Jehovah's Witness into their home. I never let a Jehovah's Witness into my home because of Second John 10. That's not what he's talking about. Um, bring them into your home if you want to. You don't have to, but bring them into your home if you want them and tell them about Jesus. And when they leave, don't make a donation to them. That's what he's talking about. Don't... don't don't harass them, but don't welcome them or applaud them either. Now, sometimes another trouble that we have in applying this is figuring out what issues we divide over. So John is writing about the deity and humanity of the Lord Jesus. That's true. There are more important issues. Uh, there are not more important. There are other important issues like that, like the Trinity, for example, or the the meaning of Christ's death, they're worth dividing over. But this is not warrant for turning away everyone with whom we have any disagreement about anything. So let's think about this. We'll make two buckets. So on this side of the stage, uh, well, let's, do it. let's start over here. This side of the stage, we're going to put in the bucket of everything that followers of Jesus have to agree about in order to be Christians. Okay, this bucket here. This bucket on this side of the stage, we're gonna, the platform, we're going to put everything that Christians can disagree about and still greet one another as brothers and sisters. Which bucket is bigger? This bucket. This bucket. We disagree about a lot of things, even though we name the same gospel. Which bucket is more important? This one right here. What's most important about our church is how our church is alike every other gospel preaching and believing church in the world. What makes your church, what makes a church important is what it agrees about, how it's like every other church, not how it's different from every other church. Um, this bucket is the most important. It's got the non-negotiables in it. When we finish Third John, Lord willing... We're going to spend 10 or 12 weeks talking about how followers of Jesus treat one another um, with this bucket. We're going to talk about your conscience and what to do when another believer's conscience doesn't align with yours. That's the plan. But John is concerned about this bucket. John tells us what to do. Watch out for these false teachers who are raiding this bucket. Don't encourage them. In his book called uh, Union with Christ, Rankin Wilborn uh, writes about a TED Talk that Barry Schwartz delivered. Maybe some of you have seen this TED Talk. It's called The Paradox of Choice. 
So in our culture, we believe in individual freedom. And because we believe in individual freedom, we naturally are inclined to think that the more choices that you have, the happier you will be. The more opportunities, the more choices that you have, um, the happier you'll be. Actually, the opposite is true. The more choices you have, uh, it tends to minimize your happiness. All those choices tend to increase your expectations so you're never actually happy with the choices that you make. So uh, let's think about shopping for a minute, shall we? If you wanted to, you could go into Zappos and look at 75,000 different pairs of shoes if you wanted to. You can look at all of them and you can choose one. You would be less happy with that choice of a shoe than you would if you had five choices and you had to pick one. Every husband in, my, in the room is elbowing his wife at this point in time, right? Okay. Amen. Okay. Schwartz says that, that actually uh, to be happy, human beings need, in fact, we thrive within boundaries. He says, think about a fish in a fishbowl. A fish in a fishbowl is, well, how free is a fish in a fishbowl? It has boundaries. It's confined to the bowl. But if you pick up the fishbowl and say, fish, I'm going to set you free and shatter the bowl, what will you do? Kill the fish right? In order to thrive, in order to thrive, a fish needs boundaries. Now, here's a question that John asked for us. What sort of boundaries do we human beings need to flourish? Central to this book, we need the boundary of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. We need Jesus at the center. We need Jesus at the circumference. You know what? This is actually our chief concern with false teaching, My highest concern about false teaching is not kicking out people who can't check all the right boxes. It's not my my chief concern. My chief concern, we, we don't hate people that we disagree with. My chief concern is that we thrive when Christ is all. And these false teachers want to take Christ out of the center. We want him there. We want to live within the the boundaries of his infinite greatness. Don't threaten that. Watch out for people who want to move us away from Christ at the center. Watching out is one of the ways that we show love for one another because truth and love go together. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for the Lord Jesus Christ. This your son, the God-man. Lord, um, combative passages like this sometimes trouble us. They trouble us because uh, they sound uh, exclusive and intolerant and, and hateful. Lord, our desire... Um, We want to celebrate the truthfulness of the Lord Jesus who said he's the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray that you would increase our joy in that truth. That that Christ indeed would be center and circumference in our congregation. I I pray for our elders. I, I pray in particular for them that they would have a careful and keen eye out for false teaching that would threaten the congregation that would despoil our commitment to the truth and the cultivation of love that would would come in through 
growth groups sometimes or or uh, books that we're reading or, or teachers that we're watching that Lord protect us use our elders to to do that grant us father that we would be kind but vigilant uh, truth loving and people welcoming in in the right way Lord uh, you have allowed According to your providence, false teachers to flourish in this world. Protect us from them. According to your kindness, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to.